This is the gist of what was just said. Anything is possible, even the impossible. Everything is possible in rock and land. This week on Said Yes as a Bird, Corey gets into hot water when he, you guessed it, said yes as a bird. What's up? This prom's been like a dream. I feel so lucky to be your date. Cool. After seeing you dance and watching you sweat in triangles, I know, I know now that I love you. Cool. Do you love me, Gory? I just said yes as a bird. Junkers bad breath. Eleanor Domp was an astronaut who had been infected by galaxy dust, a type of space germ. Signs of contamination weren't apparent until her first and only child was born, with horns, purple fur, a pelican-like beak mouth, and red eyes. She named the monstrous boy Bajunka, and his mother's crying was the first sound that it ever heard. Bajunka Domp grew rapidly. He had a distinct odor, horrendous breath, and was a reliable mimic. Eleanor loved her boy, but she saw him as grotesque, and by five years old, Bajunka realized his own hideousness. In an attempt to save his mother from her pain, he ran away to a cave and was never found. After 20 years of only coming out at night to eat, Bajunka decided to venture out and make a new home. He happened onto the city of McKenney and realized that he'd like to settle there. The only problem was the people of McKenney. McKinney, where the people are Bajunka, who was easily 10 feet tall and 10 feet wide, surveyed the area and found a large abandoned resort hotel, not far from McKenney. Around it, he built a felled tree fence, 80 feet high, with no gate. At night, he would creep into people's houses. He'd let out a roar, an exact imitation of his mother's wails, that was temporarily deafening to anyone in the house. He'd go to their beds and breathe his rancid breath on them, causing them to pass out while still sleeping, and then carry them out of McKenney, over the fence, and into the hotel. Bajunka would have had the city to himself if Len Float and Lily Leia hadn't seen him take their parents. The two friends agreed that they'd attempt to stop the monster the next night. They met at Len's house and stuffed their ears with cotton, and Len attached all of his mother's many perfume bottles to his belt and then plugged his nose with pencil erasers. When the monster eventually arrived, Lily Leia pretended to sleep on the couch while Len hid in the closet. 
They couldn't hear the sound of the mother's cries for the cotton, but Lily Leia, who hadn't plugged her nose, could not help but succumb to the wretched smell of the monster's breath. Bajunka picked her up, opened its beak, and just as it was lowering her in, Len bounded from the closet, jumped off the kitchen table, and dove headfirst down its throat. He climbed into the monster's belly, spraying perfume in every direction, and then climbed back up. As he got to the top of the throat, he saw long sheets that looked like green glass hanging in rows from the roof of the beast's mouth. Even with his nose plugged, the reek penetrated, and Len had all he could do to keep from fainting. He noticed that the sheets were delicately attached, so he tore at them, ripping them from the monster's mouth. Bajunka was coughing at the tickling in his throat. He opened his beak and then Len tossed out the sheets. They shattered on the floor and then Len grabbed Lily Leia, who was still unconscious, and the two tumbled out onto his family's kitchen floor. The green sheets were all that remained of the galaxy dust that Bajunka's mother had inadvertently inhaled before his birth. With that out of his system, the monster transformed into the young man that he was all along. His horns fell to the ground, his eyes shifted from red to blue, and he shrunk down from ten feet tall to just six. Since he was no longer a monster, he didn't need the whole city, and he didn't need to be alone anymore. Bajunka told the kids where to find their parents and the people of McKinney, and then he set out to find his own mother.
Germ, come here, boy. Germ, come in. We got strudel, apple strudel, cockadoodle. Bootily tattoo, bootily day. Excerpts of Mr. Charles' narrative of his memorable aerial voyage from Gentleman's Magazine, December 1783, as read by P.F. Whitkins and interrupted by a man calling out the names of vegetables. The globe and the chariot were in exact equilibrium on the ground. At three quarters after Cauliflower! one... Cauliflower! We threw out 19 pounds of ballast and rose in the midst of profound silence occasioned by the emotion and the astonishment... Of ...both parties. Our first pleasing reflections on our escape from the persecution... Broccoli! And Broccolini! Calamity... And brothers! ...which had attacked us were heightened by the majestic scene... Cucumber! ...which presented itself to our view... On every side, a most serene... Spinach and carrots! A most serene sky, without a cloud... Potato! And a most charming distant prospect... Kale! As we ascended by the accelerated progressive motion... we Artichoke! We waved our banner in a token of joy, and in order to... Lima bean! And in order to better... Mung bean! And in order to better ensure... Baba bean! My child, it is me. Where have you been, Father Bean? And how is Mother Bean? I have been bathing in a tub. Mother Bean is fine, but Brother Bean is not so good. He got eaten by a piano. You say tomato, I say tomato. You say potato, I say potato. You say tomato, I say tomato. You say piano, I say monster. <laughs> piano, you didn't. Apple Strudel Cockadoodle was a plain fellow and not very adventurous. He didn't have any hobbies, and his Aunt Matilda was concerned about Apple Strudel. She thought he needed some skills, some culture. So she started where most people do when they're unsure how to provide culture to the young, with piano lessons. The young man showed up to Larry Nafoli's hands-on piano studio at the arranged time. Larry was a tall man with bony fingers. He welcomed Apple Strudel and offered him a seat at the grand piano. He then excused himself to get some sheet music from the next room. Apple Strudel took the seat. He plinked on a key or two, and then he noticed the pedals. Having never sat at a piano before, he had no idea that pianos even had pedals or what they were for. He pressed one gently and nothing happened. He pressed it harder. Nothing happened. He pressed harder. Still nothing. Apple Strudel figured that the pedals might work like kickstarting a motorcycle. Maybe if he kicked them, the piano would play. So he leaned back on the stool and then kicked two of the pedals as hard as he could. The piano didn't play, but the keys did move. The black ones separated from the white, rising above them, forming a horrid, gnashing set of teeth. Apple Strudel Cockadoodle was eaten by the piano, and the keys then returned to their patterned order. When Larry returned with the sheet music, he assumed that the young man, like so many before him, had quit before they'd even begun. Oh, well, looks like I lost another one. I guess I'll just sit here and think about my life. 
Inside the piano, there was enough light for Apple Strudel to realize that he'd been shrunken down smaller than an ant. He screamed for help, but his voice came out as a thin squeak. He wandered around looking for a way out when a crew of creepy clowns jump-scared him. He ran and they disappeared into the darkness. Applestrudel turned a corner and then ran directly into a blind girl. She introduced herself as Pear Pie and told him that she was very surprised to find another person, other than the clowns, of course, as she was the last person that this piano had eaten, and that was 75 years ago. You must have made this piano really mad. It's careful about when it eats people. It doesn't want to get caught, you know, oh, what's that? She stopped talking when they heard the voice of Larry Nafoli booming above them. Apple Strudel Cockadoodle, who normally was not a man of action, knew that he did not want to live in that piano for 75 years. He took off his boot and began banging on the piano strings as hard as he could. Pear Pie joined in and the two made a dissonant clatter. Larry heard the sound and raised the piano lid. As it happened, this was just as the clowns were attempting another scare jump on Apple Strudel and Pear Pie. When they saw the light, the clowns scattered. To Larry's eyes, though, the clowns looked like insects, so we quickly closed the lid and called the exterminator. Ronaldo's exterminator service, how can I help you? The next time the lid opened, Apple Strudel saw a man's face and then a nozzle being lowered into the piano. He and Pear Pie and all of the clowns were sucked up into the exterminator's bug vacuum. Once out of the instrument, the piano's powers no longer affected them and they all assumed their true size. The vacuum cleaner bag burst and a surprise piano teacher and the bug man watched as 12 creepy clowns appeared from the dust in bits of bugs. They destroyed the piano and then ran out the front door. The police were called and then the TV news showed up. Apple Strudel and Pear Pie tried to warn the people that pianos had an evil side and that they ate people, but no one believed them. Especially not Larry, who loved that piano like family. Apple Strudel, Cockadoodle, and Pear Pie moved to the woods together to be as far away from pianos as possible. And there, under the trees, they began studying the bagpipes.
is a test of the Rock Band Land Emergency Warning System. This is a test. Number one. What do you call it when someone is trapped in time, repeating their words? Number two. Which is taller, a garbage cat or a steel fur gorilla? Number three. True or false, a taco would make a good president. The answers. Number one, time loop. Number two, at seven feet tall, a garbage cat is taller than a Steelford gorilla. Number three, true, a taco would make a good president. 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 Time loop. Bad president. Awaliwo was in rough shape. Crime and corruption were rampant. The government was barely trusted, and the people were disgruntled. Fortunately, it was an election year. Unfortunately, the candidates were less than inspiring. Taco Chief was kind-hearted. It was 71 years old, and other than bits of mold in its spicy stuff, Taco Chief was in fine shape to lead. It ran on a simple, sincere message. I will help you. Because everybody loves tacos, it won by a landslide, becoming the first Mexican food president in Awalilo's history. The new president's problems began on its first night in office. Awalilo had been in a serious drought, and that night a firestorm hit the nation. Buildings burned and forests fell. Taco Chief was on the front lines of response. When the water ran out, the president ordered one of its staff to melt down all of the millions of gallons of ice cream that Taco Chief had ordered the week before. The fires were extinguished, and as the smoke settled, the nation filled with the sweet aroma of warm milk. The citizens, though relieved that the fires were out, were irate that the president had, in their words, wasted the ice cream. As a campaign promise, Taco Chief had swore that if elected, every citizen would get an ice cream sundae within its first week in office. It wasn't a bribe, it just thought that it would be a nice thing to do. When the firestorm came, it saw no choice but to use the ice cream treats to save the nation. That was not a worthy excuse to many people who began calling the new president the Promise Breaker. Soon thereafter, the Bank of Awalilo was failing and the citizens were in a panic. The president tried to quell the upset by personally offering to drive everyone's money across the nation to Face Cannon Money Depot, a more reliable bank. It did so, but when it arrived, the money was gone. The generous president ran hot. It blamed the jalapenos that were within him. But regardless, when driving in a car, Taco Chief needed the AC on and the windows down. While transporting the nation's savings, the money blew out the back windows of the car and onto the Awalilo freeways. Needless to say, the leaders of the Promise Breaker movement were emboldened by this mishap. A scandalous, blurry photo was the president's final undoing. It'd taken a break from late-night budget talks at the home cave, Awalilo's version of the White House, and decided to get some takeout from a nearby restaurant. After receiving its order, Taco Chief reached into the bag and pulled out one of the items, unwrapped it, and took a bite on its way out the door. By the time it was back at the home cave, the story had broken. The promise breaker is a cannibal. Taco eats taco. The story, with its accompanying photo, alleged that the president had snuck out at night while its partner and kids were asleep to eat one of their own kind. The populace was incensed, and no matter of explanation would convince them that actually Taco Chief was eating an empanada. 
Led by the Promise Breakers, a mob formed. The people stormed the home cave and consumed their leader. Drafting crime and corruption, rampant in
Welcome back to Afternoon List with Raul. I'm your host, Raul Hontaponte. Let's open up the phones. Hi, Raul. This is Carol from, from McKinney. Uh, six Badgers. Oh, nice start, Carol. Very nice. Uh, Norman here from Topolillo. Uh, uh, 45 hammers. I love what you're saying, Norman. Let's keep going now. Hey, name's Carl. Uh, one Jody Foster chicken. Nice, Carl. Nice. My name's Gooby. Uh, a whole room full of hallways. Oh, that's beautiful, Gooby. Now let's move into our rapid fire round. Here we go. Afternoon list rapid fire. A thousand pelicans. 842 Japanese boat hands. One shark. 22 unused chartreuse menus. All the letters in my name stacked up neatly in an off-road vehicle. Five coconut openers in case we get lost on the island. Whole bag of belly buttons. Fourteen scary thoughts. A hundred tattoos of ringtone. Chopstick for my dry lips. Two buttons. Two buttons, two buttons, 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 two buttons. Two buttons. Potato Attack Town was a unique floating man made island consisting of hundreds of boats that were lashed together. On top of those boats, the residents built their town, which they referred to as Pat Island. The Patians were an odd sort. They weren't concerned with jobs or money or the trappings of other places. They spent their energy making strange buildings and art projects and enjoying the sun as Pat Island floated on the ocean's currents. The town was unique in another way. The people realized that they might not always want to live like that. They might one day want to return to living on land. Since the island was too big to dock in any port, they built a self-destruct mechanism into the design. To sink the island, all they had to do was push a button. The button resided on a wall inside a house that was shaped like an upside-down stegosaurus, and once pushed would trigger many pokey things to puncture the boat's hulls. The Patians knew that no resident would ever be foolish enough or evil enough to push the button, but they worried that someone might get on the island and either accidentally or intentionally push the button, bringing them all to their ruin. So they installed a second, identical decoy button beside the real one. Over one button was a sign that read, Nice! and over the other was a sign that read, DOOM. But only the Patians knew which one was the real button. This was a good thing, too, because after years of floating peacefully, Potato Attack Town was targeted by the Dark Bandits. The City Crush Award was a coveted prize given to evil masterminds and general bad guys for causing the most damage within a certain period of time. Having heard rumors about the button, the Dark Bandits stationed their submarine beneath the tethered boats and swam up to the island in hopes of eventually winning the prize. While the Patians slept, they scoured the island with metal detectors and magnets. They knew the button was made of metal. Now they just needed to find it. As the sun rose, they happened down Junior Street and onto the uninhabited upside-down Stegosaurus house. They went in and spotted the buttons at the same time and raced over to test if they were in fact metal. The detectors beeped and then the dark bandits had to make a choice. Nice or doom? They debated. One bandit suspected that it had to be a trick designed to make them doubt themselves and argued that they should do what they set out to do and push doom. The other bandit reasoned that there was no way that the islanders knew that they were coming. There was no lock on the door, and the door was wide open anyhow. If they were protective of the button, they would have buried it or hidden it. But they didn't, so clearly they should push the nice button. They settled the dispute in the fairest of ways. Rock, paper, scissors. The second dark bandit won with paper, and the nice button was pushed. 
The roof opened up, and from one of the Stegosaurus's feet came a mechanical grab hand that launched down into the room, grabbed both dark bandits, and then shook them until their clothes fell off. The grab hand took the button pushers out of the house and then dropped them in the middle of the street. By this point, the Paddians were awake and out and about. They saw the would-be vandals, and every good-natured Paddian pointed and laughed as the nudie-booty dark bandits ran through the town to its very edge and then dove into the ocean. The bandits retreated to the safety of their submarine and drove off, losing their chance to win that year's City Crush Award. To this day, Potato Attack Town is still out there floating on the ocean, and every so often, a Paddian will enter the Stegosaurus house and switch the signs above the buttons.
Sometimes reading stories makes me sneezy. Sometimes sneezy stories make me beatsy. This here's a sneezy beatsy. As the sun rose, they happened down Junior Street. <laughs> Once a year, the clock speaks. Listen. You know, you look at me several times a day. And in all those times, did it ever once cross your mind that I might like a donut too? Sorry to trouble you, but do you know what time it is? It's Feed Your Clock a Donut, Feed Your Clock a Donut, Feed Your Clock a Donut! It's Feed Your Clock a Donut. Donut Day in the Desert. A bunny named Waffle raised her sleep mask when she heard the unmistakable chime announcing the arrival of the desert unicorn. The unicorn bowed her brown head, clearly signaling Waffle to look behind a nearby cactus. There, she saw a sight of unimaginable beauty, a Christmas tree made of cheese. Waffle wept with joy and hugged the cheese tree. To protect it from the intense heat of the Blue Diamond Desert, Waffle brought the tree home to the safety of her air conditioner. In their house, the AC was powered by flushing the toilet. She woke up her friend Pancake. They named the tree Volcano and took turns joyously hugging the tree and flushing the toilet until Waffle had to get ready for work. Waffle was a dentist. She asked Pancake if he could stay home all day to continue flushing the toilet. Pancake didn't have a job. He agreed and Waffle made it to work just before the talking donuts began to fall from the sky. Since they melted so quickly in the hot sand, only one talking donut remained after the brief storm. It had fallen in the shade of a sleeping sand yak and was discovered by a garbage cat. The garbage cats were collectors by nature, hoarders really, and curated the Museum of Fantastic. The lone talking donut was put in a display case and the desert creatures were charged admission to come hear it speak. This particular talking donut was a bit of a comedian, only it had just one joke, a joke that nobody could understand and that it repeated constantly. It went like this. Pancake flushed the toilet vigorously for almost an hour and then left Volcano's side to see the talking donut. He paid his money, heard the donut's joke, and then returned to resume his post. When he got to the locked front door of their home, Pancake realized in horror that he had lost his keys. He ran around to the side window and peered in. The AC had stopped and Volcano was wilting, melting actually into a pile of goo on the stone floor. Pancake ran to Waffle's office. Together they returned to their home. Waffle undid the lock and then fell upon what was left of her beloved volcano and tried to hug it to no avail back into its Christmas tree shape. Pancake, who was desperate to help his friend, ran to the garbage cats to see if they could help. One of them, who it turns out also had found Pancake's keys in the museum, agreed to come. 
The garbage cat tried to mold the cheese into its tree form. After an hour, it seemed hopeless, and the cheese looked like a giant fish standing on its tail. Waffle tried to hug it, but it just wasn't the same. She broke down and wept. The garbage cat, who was always on the hunt for new items for the museum, thought the cheese fish was quite fantastic. He offered to trade the talking donut for the standing cheese fish. The donut was brought to their house, and Volcano was carted away by the garbage cats. Waffle and Pancake let the donut roll around their home for a bit so it could get used to its new environment. All the while, it called out, When it finally rested in the living room, Waffle opened her arms and embraced the sweet creature. It was soft and slightly sticky, but warm. The donut let out a raspberry sound and then leaned into the hug. Waffle was washed over with joy. She hugged the donut all through the night, falling asleep with it on the floor.
Sound start stories. Start stop stop. Sound stories start. Uh, stop start stories. Sound bite stories. You can at least say start stop story structure sound bite. That'll be easier. Start stop story structure sound bite. Wow, that was easier. Please continue. I was in Las Vegas, where I spend a lot of time as I have a second home. Just being a show, I'm in the ladies' room putting on my lipstick. Very attractive young woman, looked just like you, Laura, down the counter putting on her lipstick. She turns to me and said, I know you have a mouth where your belly button should be. It probably needs lipstick, too. Which I thought was incredibly observant. I hadn't said anything. Thank you for visiting Rock Band Land. We hope that you have enjoyed your stay. We will conclude today's program with a field recording of a skeleton who was trapped in a well and played his own bones in hopes of being rescued. Please sing along.